I'm Michael Shoulder. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, I'm sticking with my roots as a journalist and the son of a stand-up comic to continue a deep dive into comedy in a polarized America. I would drag him here myself, but it turns out the President of the United States is the one pussy you're not allowed to grab. Using the P word, my father was a stand-up comic, never said a dirty word on stage. You have a pretty clean act. The P word, I say the P word because I'm uncomfortable saying it on the air. You mean president? Joining me is another P word, Pete Dominic, stand-up comic and host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic on Sirius XM Radio. He will help me dissect Michelle Wolf's routine at the recent White House Correspondents' Dinner. You'll hear why it's not old news. She's going to punch up. She's going to punch up at the oppressor, at the dominant force, at the wealthy influence. That, punching up versus punching down. But when Pete Dominic directs his fist at my great tennis coach from the state of Georgia, Ross Bell, who did not like Wolf's routine. No one has ever said, don't mess with my tennis coach to me and had the result be me feel intimidated. That punch will not go unanswered. I think a response is necessary and warranted. On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, punching up versus punching down, the P word, and New York comic Pete Dominic versus Ross, the Southern tennis coach. Pete Dominic, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious for the second time in about two years. I am very honored to be back. Were you in this audience, by the way? I haven't missed a White House Correspondents' Dinner in like six years. Maybe one. Yeah, one somewhere in there I went away with my family for spring break, but I've been at a bunch of them. And so you know what the room was like. Want me to tell you why that's a horrific room for comedians? Yes. Number one, the people there don't really want to laugh. As a comic, the greatest room is a comedy club. It says comedy club on the outside. People are coming there to laugh. They're in a posture to laugh. They've also paid, so they're even more conditioned to want to enjoy themselves. You want to have an audience that wanted to come there and laugh tonight. That audience doesn't want that because that audience is a room full of, I should say, a huge vacuous hotel ballroom full of circular tables with 10 people and tuxedos around them, focused on each other and their food and not necessarily the performance. And they're all journalists mostly or in media. They don't like to be made fun of. They take themselves obviously very seriously, many of them far too seriously. And then as the comedian, you're on the stage behind a podium with a dais of people on either side. Comedians see that and say, ooh, a roast. That's what it is. A roast. You're stuck behind the podium. You can't stalk the stage with a microphone the way a stand-up comedian would. You're also reading your jokes. And yeah, sure, you're taking shots at anybody you can that's there. And when they don't laugh, you don't care because as the comedian, you're performing for your peers and everybody else watching. And that's why Stephen Colbert became immortal after his performance where in the room it bombed and in the public he became immortally respected, I know, because I warmed up the audience of the Colbert Report every night for like six years, Michael. So that's fascinating. So bad room, you're not working to the room, you're working to everybody outside the room, which must be incredibly tough as a comic. Did any of Michelle Wolf's jokes get a good laugh? Oh, yeah. The jokes about the media, the jokes about Trump, 
So let's talk about the Trump jokes. Yeah. And look, it's hard to be funny about Donald Trump now. I mean, so much has been said and done and we're watching it every day. Let me go to one of my favorite jokes. Two premises, first of all, the idea that you can't hurt Donald Trump's feelings or you can't get under his skin right. unless you talk about money and the idea that he may not be rich. People call Trump names all the time. And look, I could call Trump a racist or a misogynist or xenophobic or unstable or incompetent or impotent, but he's heard all of those and he doesn't care. So tonight, I'm gonna try to make fun of the president in a new way, in a way that I think will really get him. Mr. President, I don't think you're very rich. That was a great, unique, thoughtful approach that she and her team came up with. And that stems out of the fact that when people say that Donald Trump doesn't like to be laughed at, I generally agree to that. But other people will argue, well, he submitted himself for the Comedy Central roast. So how can you tell us that he didn't like to be laughed at? He volunteered to be the guy that they took shots at. So that's an interesting argument, of course, but that made him even more famous, which was goal number one. And goal number two, or I should say stipulation number one, he said there could be no jokes about his money or his wealth. That's where he draws the line, which is why Michelle Wolf, of course, didn't sign anything about any jokes she couldn't say about anybody or anything, I'm sure. And so, of course, she went after the one thing he didn't let them do at the Comedy Central roast. So there's a little background to that, and it was great. I did not know about that Comedy Central background. Very interesting. Well, first of all, are you comfortable using the P word? Because you have a pretty clean act. I mean, I've heard you a number of times. You do not use gratuitous language that would make people feel uncomfortable, to the best of my knowledge. The P word? You mean president? <laughs> Right. One of the ones I love is. Of course, Trump isn't here. If you haven't noticed, he's not here. And I know, I know I would drag him here myself. But it turns out the president of the United States is the one pussy you're not allowed to grab. <laughs> he said it first. Yeah, he did. You remember? Good. When you heard that in the room, what was the reaction in the room and what was your reaction? The reaction in that room is generally always this. Can I laugh at that? Because if I do laugh at that, a camera might catch me laughing at that. And I probably shouldn't be caught laughing at that because that'll become a sub story tomorrow. And so a lot of people just instinctively, they know enough not to laugh at anything with that word in it. And that's kind of what's wrong with the conversation about comedy when it comes to free speech, because just because you do, a, in this case, a pussy joke or a rape joke or a joke about cancer or 9-11 or the Holocaust, it doesn't mean that joke is making fun of that thing. It could be a joke about being the victim of that thing, and then it gets shorthandedly called pussy joke. That's not what it was. This was a clever, cleverly written, well-thought-out joke, and it had a number of different meanings and impacts, one of which is, we're taking that word back as women. We're taking that word back, as you've noticed. So don't act so shocked when you hear me, a woman, use that word to describe something that the president did and how he used it. And that audience didn't have the ability to think quickly enough. All they heard was, pussy, don't make any facial expression, could be your career on the line. There was a nonpartisan joke. You know, none of this is partisan, actually. But there was a an equal opportunity joke here. And it was so clever. 
This is like a masterpiece. It is kind of crazy that the Trump campaign was in contact with Russia when the Hillary campaign wasn't even in contact with Michigan. <laughs> Great joke. Great joke. And that, of course, is about the fact that she didn't really campaign there and she just felt confident that folks there, including black folks, would support her in Detroit, in and around Detroit. And they did not like the fact that she didn't come and even shake hands and spend some time with them. And that was a big letdown. There's a lot of data about that. So, again, that joke is true. That's why it's funny. Which is the key. It's got to be true. I broke it down and I counted roughly 50 jokes. The majority of them were true. They were based on something that's demonstrably true. Right. That's what comedy generally is. Certainly this style of comedy that people would probably classify in the genre of political comedy, of course, Michael. Yeah, the truer it is, the funnier it is. That's generally the case about all comedy, as you know. But in this case, it's that much funnier, especially when it's truth to power. That was the truth to power part where there were all powerful targets, giant media corporations, individuals, obviously influential people in power, and most dramatically, Sarah Sanders, who had to sit there and take it because why? The president didn't show up to take it himself. So, of course, she became the closest thing to him. She's the spokesman and defender which is why Michelle Wolf was so great when she took it to Sarah Sanders and which is why the media journalists, including the White House Correspondents Association, reacted by kind of apologizing to everybody. And that was very disappointing. Luckily, Michelle Wolf said, I wouldn't change a word. Tell me about this, because sometimes you hear a joke and it may be presented in a way to get your attention that shocks you so much you almost can't even digest what the punchline is. Sure. And that was a case, I think, with, well, two things. First of all, people somehow had this sense that Michelle Wolf was making fun of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' looks, which she was not. And the remark about, what was it, the black eye, a perfect- Smoky, the smoky eye, Michael. Get your makeup terminology right. <laughs> but- you know, again, anybody looking over that, and also, by the way, the comparison to the character from Handmaid's Tale. So I looked her up, and not only did I look her up, we all found out what her role is, right, right. and it's sort of the role as the mouthpiece enforcer of the truth. It was a perfect joke. It was a perfect joke. Right. It wasn't insulting about her weight, which is what a lot of people said. Nothing was ever about that. They were saying, well, if you compare her to the actress who's playing Aunt Lydia... It's not very flattering because she's not very attractive. Like, wait, now who's doing that? Now who's being sexist? But going back to what you said, and I think it's interesting that you set it up, the premise of your first, you're shocked. You don't have the ability to laugh because you're still shocked about the premise of the joke. But that's why that audience there isn't the audience. Because those of us that appreciate the more thoughtful, intellectual, true comedy with premises based on real things that have happened or are happening. We heard it and we didn't need to take as much time processing because we already were sitting with the posture of, I know what is happening right now. I know that she is not going to make some egregious offensive mistake. I know she's not going to simply put 
punch down. She's going to punch up. She's going to punch up at the oppressor, at the dominant force, at the wealthy influence. That punching up versus punching down. We knew where she was going to go because we know Michelle Wolf. We know her history. We know her politics. We know her views. And we knew that she was going to do that. So we didn't have to brace ourselves for impact. There was a very interesting word you used in that processing and the idea of processing speed. Mm-hmm. And obviously where you're sitting can impact your processing speed. You know, you're really talking about situational awareness too. But I'll tell you, I almost break out in a sweat was when she did it wasn't an abortion joke, right? It was a hypocrisy joke. Mm-hmm. But when she started talking about, hey, don't knock it unless you've tried it. And she even took it a little step further with a gesture with the elbow, like kicking the baby out. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what's she doing? And then she pivoted and delivered that punchline. And yeah, sure, you can groan all you want. I know a lot of you are very anti-abortion, you know, unless it's the one you got for your secret mistress. (laughs) It's fun how values can waver, but good for you. Yeah, well couple things about this. Number one, she's pointing to the hypocrisy, specifically, most recently, of the deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee, who had to pay off a woman, a playboy model, apparently, who he had an affair with and got pregnant. So he paid for an abortion. And this is the deputy finance chief, a guy who is supposed to be uh, anti abortion, of course. And so there is an inconsistency there. And she points out the hypocrisy with that great line you just heard about values wavering. But the more important point is that you and I hear a joke about maybe an abortion that's graphic the way that she said it, you know, really knock it out there. And we're more shocked because maybe we come from an older generation of men who are pro-choice, but, you know, hey, nobody wants an abortion. And I'm not pro-abortion. There's not jokes about the intimate parts and the graphic parts about an abortion are horrifying to people like us. But to women, many women, and to the women of this new era of feminism, they are owning the abortion, every single part of it. They are not going to be shamed for getting one. And you and I can sit there and go, whoa, too far. We can if we want, and we can sound like old men, or we can allow these young, independent, powerful women of which you and I both have daughters in this generation say, we're owning this. It's our issue, and we are going to own the way it's handled and talked about. That's how I hear it and see it from Michelle Wolf and many, many women around her age and our daughter's ages. Clearly, there must be a lot of young women of this new age who would be taken aback by that premise, I would yeah, think. Yeah, but I'm trying to explain to you why many people don't hear that the way that other people hear it. And that's true of all jokes, of all things. It's subjective in you hear and see things the way that you live them. And things aren't always as they seem, of course. Somebody came up with the idea, well, maybe next correspondence dinner, they should have a progressive or a liberal or whatever you want to call it, comedian and a conservative comedian. Let me ask you something. It does seem like most of the really funny comedians out there are not from the right. There are a couple, maybe. Anybody from the right who's doing stand-up comedy who you would recommend? No. Well, that wasn't very nuanced. Why is that? Why do you think? Because in this era, we have a right-wing lunatic in charge and 
all comedy needs to check him from the left. I mean, there's a handful of guys who are conservative comedians who I think are funny, but I just don't love what they're pointing at. I think they punch down, and I want someone who punches up. I want to jump back on something really resonated with me when you talked about Michelle Wolf punching up to the people who were in power, to the people who many Americans view are really responsible for oppressing a lot of people in this country and creating an oppressive atmosphere. And the last time we spoke for Wavemaker, you talked about how you think basically, by and large, the funniest comics ever have been Jewish and black because they've sort of experience that level of oppression and that's where the humor comes from. Right. You have right. to suffer to really be funny. Well, you don't have to suffer to be funny, but the more you suffer, the more potential there is to be funny. Now, of course, there are many exceptions to the rule about suffering and comedy, and there are many guys who are just great observational comedians, Jim Gaffigan, Jerry Seinfeld, Brian Regan. But the desire to do comedy and stand up in front of a group of people to be validated also can come from some type of suffering. So a little bit more nuanced on that answer. But generally, that's what I've always felt about Jewish and black comedians, as well as women, female comedians. Well, you know, and that's interesting. That's what I was thinking is that she is, Michelle Wolf considers herself a feminist comic. And clearly there is a particular woman's take on what is going on in this country. Speaking of which, this was a gentle joke, but the one joke she threw about Me Too. I watch Morning Joe every morning. We now know that Mika and Joe are engaged. Congratulations, you guys. It's like when a Me Too works out. <laughs> I mean, again, part of the brilliance in that was just the phrasing and again, key element of comedy, right? Surprise. But I guess there's some truth to that. Sure. I mean, listen, that is a really interesting joke. It's offensive mainly to Joe and Mika because Joe doesn't want to be lumped in with men who have been wrapped up. So he doesn't want to be the premise of that joke. But let's also be honest. I mean, it's not as if relationships haven't started with men being creeps. And then at some point, a woman decided it changed her mind or whatever. But I mean, there's a lot of layers to that joke. And it's about a really important issue that's got a name, one of many, but the Me Too movement. And so it's it's a risky joke. I could see some feminists being offended by that. I didn't read any of that. But that's why it's a risky joke. And that's why if you're going to take a risk, it better be funny. And it was. It was funny. I just found out I've been at basically every one of these White House Correspondents' Dinners for many years. One of the most famous roasts and most impactful roasts ever at one of those dinners was President Barack Obama looking at Donald Trump in the audience. I'm going to play a segment for you now, the memorable sequence of lines that President Obama aimed at Donald Trump, which many people say were partly responsible, maybe largely responsible, for Donald Trump deciding to run for office as revenge to get President Obama back. Now, I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? <laughs> what really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? 
borrowing from the classic Johnny Carson framing of Trump is so broke, right? And then the audience, I thought she was going to get no response because the audience was in such shock. But you say they don't come to laugh, but everybody wants to be entertained and they know the entertainment's coming and they know year after year, everybody talks about the entertainment and critiques it. People were listening, right? Yeah, people were listening. They were definitely listening. And at sometimes more than at others, sometimes they were hissing and booing as well. I didn't really notice much of that from where I was, but there were some people who were obviously appalled. But yeah, when she set up the Donald Trump is so broke premise. We're going to try a fun new thing, okay? I'm going to say Trump is so broke and you guys go, how broke is he? I was a little surprised by the level of engagement in the room. It sounded like a lot of people were playing along, which is also an interesting criticism. If they're going to act like they're not laughing or they don't appreciate what the comedian is saying, they're offended, then they were also actively engaged in the process when they were yelling their lines during the night. Hard to have it both ways, but I'll let you have it both ways if you want, because it's always funny to join in a performance in that way. But also, she hook, line, and sinkered the audience. Donald Trump is so broke. I mean, it's not like the premise was Donald Trump is such a rapist that it wasn't something so harsh that the audience wasn't going to go along. It was pretty docile, tame. Right. So then we get to the final of the punchlines from that sequence, which is either 100% accurate or somewhat accurate based on what we know. It's, it's pretty darn close. Trump is so broke. Uh, He had to borrow money from the Russians and now he's compromised and not susceptible to blackmail and possibly responsible for the collapse of the Republic. Yay! It's a fun game. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's a gorgeous, exquisite comedy nugget that comedians and those who respect comedy, especially when it's done originally and topically and with risk inherent. It's a gorgeous, exquisite, scrumptious comedy nugget, as was the taking on the media and basically telling, I'll throw myself included in it, that we've all profited. We've all won personally and financially because of Trump. More people are listening and watching us. That is a truth. And by the way, we shouldn't take that for granted because given all of Trump's public rhetoric against the media, when he took office, we in the media in journalism were really not sure how this was going to shake out. And the fact that journalism in some ways has become bolder and stronger was not a foregone conclusion. I think there is some validity to that criticism. But while that could be true to some extent, I don't know. Listen, Did anybody during the rise of fascism in the 30s in Rome at the Rome Daily, whatever the newspaper was there at the time, say, you know what, we're just paying too much attention to the rise of this Mussolini guy and how he's now ruling this country and who he is associated himself with. There's just too many articles about that. I mean, you can take a wider view of things. That criticism could be accurate, but I don't buy it. I read and if you look, you can find a lot of great journalism about a number of issues that could be called the crisis of our time. Well, listen, there's a guy, a tennis coach here in Atlanta who I like to hit with and who's taught me a lot. Really smart guy, was a great student, young guy in his late 20s, I'd say. And I just texted him because I don't know what his politics are at Mm -hmm. all. 
And you were hoping to destroy the good that you had built in that relationship, so you asked him? <laughs> no, I didn't ask him anything about politics, but it's interesting because, in a sense, comedy is a door that maybe opens a conversation, right? And so I just asked, sure. and I know he follows the news, I said, did you see the Michelle Wolf performance? What do you think? It was a text, so it was very quick. And he said, too personal. And I have to admit that when I was watching the clips, not the whole 18-minute routine, I said, ooh, you know, she's going too far. And you and I have talked about the line, when do comedians cross the line? And your answer at the time, which I'm sure you remember because it's what you believe, is we don't think about lines, we comedians, and we don't look to cross them. You know, we're just looking to be funny, right? But that idea of too personal, it's just sometimes uncomfortable mm. to watch people roasted, especially if the truth is very uncomfortable. Do you ever get that feeling? I do, but it depends on who the target is. Google Jamie Foxx roast where another comedian was roasting and he was kind of a no-name. And uh, Jamie Foxx attacked him. It was awful. And I felt bad for that guy. Now, that was a case of punching down, right? I think so. Yeah. The alpha of the group beating up on the new cub. But I think, Michael, if we're talking about it was too personal and it was too mean, a lot of people are interpreting it was too personal and mean to Sarah Sanders. I'm not sure who else he, I assume your tennis coach name is Chip, could have been referring to. It's actually Ross. Don't mess with Ross. No one has ever said, don't mess with my tennis coach to me and had the result be me feel intimidated. But let's not get hung up on that. <laughs> you picture these targets who are being made fun of in this case, and you take them as you know them. And if you didn't know her at all or anything about her background or life, I can understand someone saying, whoosh. It's kind of harsh. But I think of Sarah Sanders as somebody who comes out and punches America in the face every day over and over and over and over, just beats us and slaps us and disrespects us and lies to us and treats us terribly and represents this man who is so awful every single day she does that. She hits us and she pulls our hair. Michelle Wolf went up and gently scolded in my interpretation, this woman who is a bully and mean and disrespectful and dishonest. And so that's the lens that I see it through. Now, Chip doesn't see it through that lens and he thinks it's maybe too personal. I'm assuming what he thinks. And that's probably just me being a real prejudiced jerk because he's a Southern tennis coach. But that's the way I see it, Michael. Listen, you know, I'm going to get Ross, not Chip, and I'm going to let him hear what you said, and I'm sure. going to have him give his response. I'm happy to engage him. I'm happy to apologize for any assumptions that I've made. The name was Chip to start out with, I yeah. believe. Ross is my name. Still, I know four letters, but still, R is definitely different than C. But I mean, let's be honest. He is, come on, he is like a frat kid who went to Alabama, right? I was a little awestruck by the fact that, again, I would believe I went to Alabama and I was a fraternity boy. <laughs> When actually I went to a liberal arts institution in Atlanta, graduated with a 3.94 GPA, and was slated to be president of my fraternity. So half of Pete's statement is correct. So here is Ross's fundamental critique of Michelle Wolf's routine. And please forgive the hollow sounding audio. We were in a very bare room that the tennis coaches use for meetings. I think some of the vulgarity used, some of the profanity used, especially starting off in her speech, it just took me back. I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
And this is where Pete, I will give you this. I think it is okay, again, if you punch up and the people of power who, who have not quote unquote power over you, but have the power to make decisions and they affect you personally, they affect a lot of people personally each and every day of their lives. That again, it's okay, but maybe I'm thinking more of every morning I say when I turn on the news, it's a constant story. Like you hear about Trump on Monday, on Tuesday, you hear about the special counsel on Wednesday, about payments on Thursday. It's just every week, maybe it just gets like enough is enough. It's exhausting hearing about Trump this, Trump that. And as much as we're talking about it, and I think Pete, as you mentioned, we're actually feeding this. We're helping feed material used each and every day. And I would be surprised if Trump's not sitting back in a chair laughing, being like, this is exactly what I wanted. You know, I'm getting the publicity I need just by doing almost, almost nothing in a sense. Whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Libertarian, it's over the top getting talked about. In total, I just don't find the humor. And what I want maybe, as we're talking about in a roast or laughing, I just want to get out of my chair and be excited. In all truth, I was more ready for it to be over and for us to move on. I asked Ross what he would do if we could get Pete Dominic down to Atlanta to get a coaching session with him on the tennis court. I am a very high energy individual. As you may be able to tell, I talk rather fast at times. I move fast. I don't sit down a lot. But I like to make sure at the end of the hour, not only have you learned something, you get a good workout as well. I try to move you around, get you moving side to side. My goal is basically to get you to tap out before the hour's over because I've known I've done my job. So knowing how you responded about the Southern white elitist that you're now speaking toward, I would like to know how the Northerner in upstate would deal in the Southern heat down here and the humidity and see how long you'd really last. So maybe we'll take, maybe we'll take some bets on the, the timing before you raise the white flag. At some point, I'll get back to Pete to see if he might be up to the challenge of an hour on the court with Ross without tapping out. But for this episode, one last question for Pete. Are there any other anecdotes from any of these White House correspondence dinners? My wife is a huge fan of Michelle Obama, like any American with a beating heart and a moral compass that pointed the right direction. And Michelle Obama, my wife, so desperately wanted to meet her. But of course, she's 20 feet away and divided by a big moat between you and the dais, even if you're in the front table, which we were that year. Anyway, my wife somehow got the first lady's attention. And the first lady and she negotiated a picture and how she should pose. And Michelle Obama said to my wife, I'll pretend I'm like hugging you in the background. And my wife said, no, 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 just like wave. So my wife disagreed, shook Michelle Obama off on her suggestion, first of all. So let's note that. And to me, it was two amazing, great, strong women framed in a photo. And for me to be able to kind of create and provide that opportunity, given my career, that was it right there. Pete, thank you as always. Michael, you're one of the best. I appreciate the opportunity, the honor to be invited back a second time on your amazing podcast. Punching Up with Pete Dominic. You can listen to him every morning from 9 to noon on Sirius XM. And by the way, he can take a punch as well as he can give it. I'm going to be continuing my deep dive into comedy in our polarized nation. Could it possibly be a force for unity? Should that even be its goal? We'll see. And I also want to let you know that in a few weeks, I'll be sitting down with one of the great actresses of our time, Jane Alexander, who got her first break on Broadway in 1968, opposite a young James Earl Jones in the Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Great White Hope. 
She knows something about the art and humor of politics as well, having served as the head of the National Endowment for the Arts under President Clinton at a time when the endowment was being targeted for extinction. That's coming in June. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you're in your car right now and there's a safe place to pull over, please do pull over and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share and spread the word. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations.